Hi, this is Rebecca Burnt. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Unfolding Podcast, where we are seeking truth and wisdom as things fall apart and having conversations beyond polarized ideology. Today, I want to welcome another Rebecca, my friend, Beck Cranford. Beck is a self-identified Baptocostal misfit from Atlanta, Georgia, floating in the mystical world of ecumenism and interfaith conversations. She's also one tough mother and an urban missiologist wrestling with just practices and charity. Beck has taught at Emory University's Candler School of Theology as a contextual education supervisor. She served as a director of community and volunteer coordinator for the Wild Goose Festival. And for the last 10 years, she was the director of community engagement at Atlanta's largest homeless service agency. Thank you for being here. I'm um, so stoked, Rebecca. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about how we um, how we met, and I, I think it was probably around 2010, and I was living in Atlanta at the time, and we were both part of something that was called uh, the Emergent Church Movement at the time, which I would describe as basically Protestant was mostly Protestant Christians wrestling with postmodernism, and so you kind of had people coming from the evangelical world who were doing a lot of deconstructing of their faith and their dogma, and you had a lot of people also from the more mainline Protestant world that I think were deconstructing a lot of their ideas about how to do ministry and church and things like that, and so you had those kind of two groups mixing together, and I think you and I actually. Um, we were both part of a, a sort of subset of that it was a group called outlaw preachers. Uh, it was like a lot of, I was never like this, the, the tatted up type. There were quite a, quite a number uh, amongst those uh, outlaw preachers of people who were just like, like just kind of really like um, different and doing, doing ministry and doing, um, doing service in, communities that weren't necessarily all the academics that were having the the more highfalutin um, emergent conversations. So does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I remember that time very well. So I was at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary and had started my own deconstruction and was having a lot of really big questions about things. And in the um, cradle of the internet, I found all these discussion boards and Twitter was like my big thing back then. And so I was following a lot of different pastors and this hashtag outlaw preachers caught my attention. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of really cool people in there. A lot of people that um, helped me kind of rethink some things as well as just were really nice to me. Um, and then later, as I was uh, jettisoned from my particular denomination, um, sort of came to envelop me in a, in a lot of love. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I remember that. And I also remember thinking that you were drop dead gorgeous the first time that I ever laid eyes on you, um, that you were extremely smart and gifted, um, but also very caring. Um, and with just a, a hint of snarkiness. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, I just always appreciated you because you were just like this super charismatic personality. You were so funny. You would get up and speak and tell the best stories. And um, yeah, I think you're definitely a raconteur. Like that's one one title I would give to you. Um, and you're a pretty amazing person. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about just kind of your your faith journey and like maybe with Pentecostalism, like what that is, how you became a, a minister and what that kind of, yeah, what that whole process has been like. Yeah, so I'm going to give you the truncated version, um, but let's start out by saying that demons and angels were very real. And as a child, I had a very vivid um, imagination in so much as there was always things trying to scare me and hurt me at night. And I would scream and my mom would come in with anointing oil and touch the walls. And she would say the name of Jesus and the demons would disappear. The things that frightened me. But I had really bad nightmares as well as a child. And I was being molested um, at home and at church. And I couldn't tell my parents that that was happening. Uh, both of my abusers told me if I told them that God would never love me, that they would be mad at me and that this was my fault. And the sermons I was hearing was a lot about like sexual purity, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, so like sex is bad. If you are having sex outside of marriage and stuff, you're bad. Yeah. And how old were you when this was happening? I internalized that message so early. I may have been four or five when I realized I was a bad person and it was super complicated because being molested, I feel like my power was taken away early, but at the same time, the touch and attention felt good. Yeah, um, yeah. The complexities, my father was absent um, emotionally and physically with touch. So there was a lot of complexities there. Uh, my mother was a, a badass saint though. Like she would have like the Bible open and my mom had a really strong like intuition, if that makes sense, but she didn't know the things that were happening to us. And I later found out that there was a family legacy of like molestation going on on that side of the family that had went back for many generations. And, um, I think my mom was aware of so many things in a spiritual way, but not aware that that was happening to us, but always a protector, always a strong woman, always very generous and kind. Um, long story short, my dad was, uh, had some mental health issues um, from his own trauma, right? That was unhealed and doing the best that he could. Uh, we were in church at a Pentecostal church, you know, and he was the guy with the big hair. Who's like, come on, everybody praise the Lord. And so we're like <laughs> in the church all the time. And, um, I just always had this mystical fascination with God. And when anyone would tell stories about God, I just listened. And it didn't matter like if it, they were Christian or who they were, like I was intense, anything about supernatural. I was always really drawn to, um, just, interested in the kind of mystical stuff. Um, fast forward, I got really angry. I know, you know, you look at me today and be like, not you, you can never be angry or rebellious, but, um, but I was. 
uh, and super pissed off about what was happening. Wanted to take back some of my agency. So I shaved my head, <clears throat> told everyone I was a boy. I felt strong in being a boy. I didn't, um, I didn't experience strength as femininity until I was about 40 years of age. Um, but just really uh, was dealing with that. My dad told everybody in our congregation that I was a practicing uh, Satanist and a lesbian uh, when I was young. So I was like, okay, well, F you and F God, and I'm out of here. And I became an atheist for about a year. Um, couldn't shake the God haunting, I guess you would say. Um, got quickly into the drug scene. Um, was very interested in Timothy Leary and sort of the 60s movements around drugs and expression, as well as some of the like MK Ultra things that were happening with like telekinesis and pyrokinesis and was very interested in mind expansion and drugs. Um, at that time in my life, uh, I also experienced homelessness that was very brief, um, but it bounced around. Uh, met a guy named Isaac. My name's Rebecca. I thought it was providential. <laughs> uh, he got me into the rave scene. I did that for a long time. Um, was very interested in Native American spirituality. I was always being drawn to that and almost hearing it um, in my drug experiences. And um, then I overdosed. I was 25. I overdosed uh, on ketamine, MDMA, uh, cocaine, and methamphetamines and uh, had a near-death experience. Uh, I think I saw this like Jesus kind of figure, sort of like a bodhisattva um, giving of himself to like rescue people caught in like some sort of psychic hell or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I was in this darkness and this overdose and I saw this person that looked like Bob Marley and Captain Jack Sparrow uh, rescue me. And I just, remember wagering with God. And I was like, I will give you my life if you let me live. Um, for me, I thought I was dying. Um, and my friends thought I was dying. They put me in a bathtub and basically left me to die. I woke up and I began to share this experience with my boyfriend, Isaac, who was, um, who was a zealous atheist fundamentalist. Um, and he, of course, didn't believe me and said, you know, you had a bad trip. And of course, it could have been the drugs, right? Like, I am totally open to that was a complete psychological and neurological experience. But it set me on a course. Um, I went back into the church. I ended up back in Pentecostalism, which I think was the universe's funny way of having me walk through some of my trauma <laughs> as a child um, and learn about some of the really great things of Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. And then um, ultimately uh, left, was asked to leave there because of my um, involvement in certain activities that were deemed suspicious, like loving people. <laughs> um, and um, well, what do you mean by loving people? Was it like certain kinds of people or? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was being kind of groomed to be this church planner in this denomination. And I had this idea of starting a church for people who were traditionally excluded from church in the South. And that included free thinkers, 
lesbians, atheists, gays, queers, you know, people outside of the Bapticostal sort of mm-hmm. thickness that is, you know, the Southern fried Christianity. Um, and that got me in a lot of trouble. So, um, yeah, so it was kicked out and, um, and had some loving people in that denomination. So I'm totally not painting those, uh, those people, um, as bad because there was a lot of good there. Um, but that's how I really was steeped deeply into the emerging movement. And I met our mutual friend, Mike Morrell, who, really supported me and rallied to me in my life. Um, I also met my first husband in that moment, which I won't say much about that, except um, I shouldn't have married a Baptist. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and maybe, maybe my dad was right. Maybe I'm a gay witch anyways. Um, <laughs> but um, where my spirituality is these days, uh, I float around the main line. I'm very interested in interfaith circles, but I'm also really interested in spiritual abuse. And um, while I'm working with our friends who are experiencing homelessness, I'm also trying to learn as much as I can about spiritual abuse and do some side um, spiritual listening. I'm not a certified spiritual director at this time, but that's the path that I'm on. Um, And I'm really interested in, in interreligious and interfaith conversation and dialogue and um I don't know I'm still mesmerized by God I would even say God haunted so yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story um yeah it's it's interesting because I mean there's definitely some intersections with you and I as far as both growing up um in this sort of Pentecostalism and like demons and angels being very real when, when you were a kid, um, I don't think I, I sensed them always as intensely as my brother did, but like he used to be up all the time and my mom would come in and pray with him and say, you just pray the name of Jesus. And I did, when I was three years old, come up to my mother and say, I command you to read this book to me in the name of Jesus, you know, cause I grew up hearing people trying to cast out demons and stuff all the time with those words. And uh, she was like, Oh, okay. Well, I better read it to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think there was, I, I did not have as traumatic an experience in the church, but there's definitely trauma there. I think the ways that a lot of, um, just the, the sexual purity culture was damaging to me. <laughs> and also I think the bigger thing was, um, you know, I had, I had a father who had a car accident and a brain injury. And one of the things I really struggled with was a lot of the magical thinking that happens in Pentecostalism, where it's like, God can do whatever I want him to. And like, I'm not going to, no, no, no. I'm just not going to accept that this has happened to me. I'm not going to accept that I can't have everything I want. I'm just going to keep praying and believing. And, and the ways that that keeps people sometimes from just you know, adapting and, and letting maybe something new grow out of difficult circumstances, because you you can't, it's, it's like, you can't, um, you can't plant something new if you're not even willing to look at the ground beneath your feet, you know? So um, what I appreciate about you, because of what I, I do feel like 
we both connect with is first, like that thing I could never quite get away from God, even when it didn't, he didn't make sense to me. And I, I wanted to be an atheist. I was like, I don't, I, for me, it was like, I know that if I believe that there's this Holy spirit or Jesus or whatever that cares about me and has my back and like wants the best for me, my life just goes better when I act as though I believe that even if I can't intellectually make sense of it. Um, and the, the other thing is I, I have a real, you know, lots of problems with Pentecostalism and evangelicalism in general, just the theology of it, the way it kind of flattens out so much of, of the, the deep mysticism and, um, and beauty and richness that I do think is present in Christianity. But at the same time, I can acknowledge that there were a lot of good things that it gave me. You know, there was a community of people that did genuinely love me and care about me, you know, growing up. And even now, as I'm right now in my parents' house, kind of, um, you know, helping my my family, my, my mother is going through some health stuff. And so I'm like kind of here to kind of support them on that journey. It's you know, their church has been super supportive and it's nice to know that they have that community and that network of people. A lot of people in today's world don't have. Um, so I think you and I were both in this space where there was, a, as people were deconstructing their uh, dogmatic beliefs that they got from evangelicalism, there was a lot of processing of trauma and of just like the, the, the grief and the anger and the pain around growing up in, in something that sometimes felt like a cult. And at the same time, I think there's a lot of people, it can become really easy to stew in that and let that just become the story that you tell about everything. And I appreciate that you can both acknowledge the real, the real wounding and you, you, you had especially like a lot of deep wounding in that space, but also acknowledging that there was still beauty um, and, and some good things out of it. And I, I love that about your story. Thank you. Um, one thing that you just said that made me think was, you know, you're walking through this difficult time with your parents and your parents do have community. Mm -hmm. Um, for most of my life, I had some friends, but very few really close friends. Yeah. And I think I shielded myself from friendship and like maybe wore a lot of armor, um, especially like being offensive. Like that was my love language. Like I was going to, you know, scare you off before you got yeah. too close to me. Um, but as I'm older, I'm like, I do need help. Like I really yeah. do. Need and I can't do all these things on my own. And though it was a part of me that was developed for protection, and I'm grateful for that part of me, you know, it missed the boat on a lot of opportunities to really deeply connect um, with the wisdom found in other people and supports. And I think expressions of community, whether they're found in church or in other places, are really healthy. And as I sit in, in different intersections, like abuse and trauma, sometimes there's community and sometimes it's culty, but there's other times where there's no community and there's isolation and there's this 
you know, need to say, well, our family has it all together and we cannot be vulnerable or, you know, burnt bridges. So I'm just really appreciative of you shouting out that, that need for community. And that's one of the reasons why I sort of stay um, at my local church. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, I say words every Sunday, but if I wanted to intellectualize them, I would probably disagree with every word that I say on Sunday. But there are still parts of beauty about the, the liturgy. And though I don't necessarily agree with the doctrine, I love those people. And I think in many ways they're growing to love me. Um, and I don't know. Community's great. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard for me though. Like I'm, yeah. I'm still like, okay, like let's, let's try people again. Let's see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I ask what denomination are you in now? So, well, I kind of float around, but um, I belong to a United Methodist church that is in the middle of rupturing at the seams mm -hmm. over issues that, many other denominations have walked through um so that's where i'm kind of landing um but i don't know i mean i have a cohort of friends that are in a spiritual direction program with me and they're all across the board so it's good mm -hmm. to to be with them and i'm not politically tied to the united methodist church so i get to say whatever i want to say without fear of losing my job so <laughs> yeah that's always a good place to be yeah. I find that over the years, I do this thing where, and, and I've been Episcopalian since I was like 20, I think. Um, and I think for me, part of that was that I was always really drawn to the sort of the richer, more high church liturgical spaces. Um, and it's funny because I'm watching like right now, there's like a sort of a mini trend of like people getting, and, and this happened even like 10 years ago when I was in, in the, um, emergency scene too, like we would be like, oh, like let's go to an Orthodox church and experience the liturgy there, you know, or like go to a Catholic church and stuff. And, and I grew up my mom, even though we were Pentecostal and she wasn't raised Catholic, she was super close to her grandmother who was, and when she wanted to feel close to her, she would, she would like, we would go to a Catholic church, um, just to like, you know, on, on a weekday or something. And like, they might have noon mass or, you know, my, we would just go in the sanctuary, but I always loved that, you know, and I always like was fascinated by the rosary and the saints and stuff like that. Um, but I think the Episcopal church has felt like a home for me because I can get some of that, but it also does like ordain women and, you know, like, uh, you know, married gay people, which, which I do care about. Um, at the same time, I've gone in and out of these spaces of like being a, just like, you know, as I've explored spiritually, I think feeling like, oh, more disconnected from Christianity. And like, I don't really believe all this stuff. And I'll kind of like take some space away and then something will draw me back in. And it feels like this thing that I'm like constantly circling around back to and discovering kind of a new angle on each time. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think right now I've been in a season of just getting pulled more into it uh, again. And really, for me, understanding that part of the reason I identify as Christian is the reason we were always told 
not to growing up as good evangelicals, which is that uh, you're born into it, right? You're not a Christian just because you can't be born one. You have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, right? But for me, it's like, this is my ancestral tradition. It is in my genes and my bones and my blood. And I do things like pray the rosary. And when I say the, the, and, and I used to, I used to make up like sort of more witchy versions of the prayers of the Hail Mary and stuff. But when I, I started just like really feeling led to say the traditional words. And when I did it, I felt like I could feel this long line of ancestors behind me who have been saying this, these prayers for centuries in English and in Latin, you know, like, and just coming up behind me and being at my back. And that was, um, that was kind of like an amazing thing. And so for me, I think I'm always like saying, okay, I, I don't ever want to discount this. Like if, if I'm, if I'm just quick to say, oh, this is so stupid. Like, you know, believing in, I don't know, the virgin birth or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. There's always a deeper mystical truth there. And, um, and, you know, it's not about trying to grasp it with my, my sort of rational mind. It's about opening to it with my heart and, and letting, letting that deeper meaning kind of permeate it. Um, and I, I don't know why, I don't know why I said that is like why I'm going off in that direction, just kind of like responding, but yeah, I, I'm, I think it was something that you said about saying, like, if I think about it with rationally, I might not agree with the words, but you know, there's some, there's a deeper level on which you resonate with it. Yeah. Um, I love how you said that you feel so connected to this deep sense of ancestry and you feel so supported. And I think that's really amazing because I've had similar experiences. And while I feel like Western um, evangelical Christianity pushes away any sort of connection to ancestors, I found that there is a deep reverence for ancestors and um, in the Orthodox world and the African Coptic Christian mm -hmm. tradition and the traditions of you know, two-thirds world's Christians who venerate ancestors. And in my own research, one of the first things that I learned was in the Didache, the understanding of communion was with the quick and the dead. And that was mm -hmm. like yes. the living in the dead were present in this mystical moment. And the, you know, the veil was thin. And um, I love that. And I love you know, Hebrews 13, it talks about our great cloud of witnesses. And I think about those who went on before us who, who do have our back and who are cheering for us. And I think about the stoning of Stephen and it talks about how heaven stood up for Stephen as he was being stoned. And I think about those kind of mystical parts of scripture that coming from a, what I would call a bibliolater background right where the bible was an idol um like you know you had to have biblical proof to to put out these beliefs uh, and form some sort of dogma the more death that i've experienced and loss <clears throat> that i've experienced in my life the closer i feel connected 
to the other realm or other realms. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I've had moments where I know the dead were attempting to communicate to me. I've, you know, and um, I'll just get mystical woo right here because I feel like being vulnerable. Um, but, you know, I've heard my grandmother's laugh. I've seen feathers appear midair and land. I've, you know, I've watched dimes come up and immediately be thinking of an ancestor. And I feel so very connected to um, the other realms. And there, I think understanding our ancestors is a type of spirituality which can refresh us, which can help us and can really help us heal. Like not only the healing ourselves, but I, you know, I think when we, heal ourselves we begin to heal some of those ancestral things um yeah i uh came across a story in some ancestral research about a cranford who was a, a distant relative like a fifth great uncle who got into a squabble um with a free man um in georgia over wage and tried to shoot the free man and the free man defending himself uh, put an ax in, into the, the long, you know, distant relative. When you say free man, you mean a free black man? Yeah, free black man. He yeah. was recently freed um, after the Emancipation Proclamation, which took a lot longer to kind of reach Georgia <laughs> than other places. Yeah. So but just reading about the story and then the way that this man was treated and then the horrors that ensued in my family, like um, I, I can just see so much pain. And it's weird when you start studying your ancestors, cause it's like, you see these horrors and these things that happened that were like, they were oppressors. But then you read a story of a healer who grew a large garden and who, you know, fed a neighborhood in a time of depression. So it's like, you've got these stories of moonshine dealers and the enslaved and slavers and, you know, the oppressors in the oppressed and healers and thieves. And it's just like, I don't know. It's a story that's common, you know, common to humanity. And yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I mean, that's the thing that I, I think I've really been feeling so much of is that this idea of like Christian in Christianity, this idea of there's like some sort of reconciliation and redemption of all of creation taking place, that that's really what Jesus is here to do. Um, in, in some of the, the, um, some of like the, the church fathers, like ancient church fathers, they talk about apocatastasis, which is this idea that like every, like everything is like coming to, um, this, this culmination, this sort of like everything is being healed in the end. Right. And to me, so much of that is that like, as we do that for ourselves, as we really take an honest look at everything inside of ourselves, including, you know, quote unquote sin, which we all, we all have, um, in the Bible, it says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As our friend, Mike Morrell once said to me, it was something like for all, uh, 
all are problematic and have fallen short of the wokeness of Godex or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, we all, the more you take a look at yourself, you're like, oh, there's all these things I have to forgive myself for. And when you really start to do that, you have, it's so easy. It's so much easier to forgive others. It really is. And, and I feel that as I look back at my ancestors and I look at history and I look at all of these like horrible, violent things that have happened. I mean, like, like you look at the, the, you know, we idealize sometimes the pagan or pre-Christian world, but there's like tons of like child sacrifice happening and there was slavery happening then too. And there's slavery happening amongst like on all the continents, you know, at some point we have to really own all of it. And, and, and I, we can't redeem what we don't actually own and claim. And this idea that we can somehow separate ourselves off from the bad people or the bad parts of humanity and create like a pure culture over here. It's like, that's what, that's what in some ways evangelicals were trying to do, you know, and, you know, I'm not saying there's not ever a place for maybe having like a bounded container for something to happen, but, um, but yeah, there's something about really looking at your, looking at your ancestral lineage and understanding like these people did probably some fucked up things. There, there was abuse and alcoholism and like lots of stuff, even in my more immediate family, but also like, I wouldn't be here without them. So whatever they did is part of me too. Right. And, um, I do, I agree with you. The, the more we kind of do that healing within ourselves, we heal our ancestors and we heal what comes forward in the future. Um, and I think the other thing that kind of struck me about what you said, I can't remember now there was something else. But um, yeah, I do really believe that traditionally, like you said, uh, I, I didn't know about this being in the Didache, what you said about um, the, the them really seeing that as like the communion of the living and the dead. But I have read that in like Peter Brown, who's a very famous historian of antiquity in some of his books, he talks about this. But really where I first learned about it was uh, in the old Baltimore Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was printed in like the 1800s. And we have a copy because it's what is the quote unquote family Bible on my mom's side where all the, the, it's like this thing was printed in 18 something. It's falling apart. It's got like all these ancestors names in it. But I remember reading it as a kid. I didn't read the whole thing, but I opened up to a page and it said, the reason we pray to saints is because the communion of saints is unbroken by death. And I, that struck me so hard because I thought I loved that the Catholics got to pray to the saints and to Mary. And I was like, I know it's not, we're not supposed to do that, but I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Of course, of course it's unbroken by death. Yeah. So, um, a couple of things. One, I love prayer to the saints. I have saints all over my house, like, um, have saints tattooed on my body, talk mm -hmm. to them regularly. And like, Mary and me are homegirls. Like I talk to Mary a lot and I just, I'm, I feel like there's just another person that I care about. Um, for me, I still have maybe some implanted messages from my youth about, um, opening up doorways that you can't mm -hmm. shut. So yeah. I have a, a little bit of a protective ritual and I sure. always, you know, I invite 
my ancestors who longed for the good mm-hmm. to come about to be a part of my prayer when I'm when I am praying and when I you know when I set out to be with them and to be uh, with Mary and Jesus and um, and the angels and you know what I'm like hell if there's aliens if you guys are good too sentient beings energies that are good like come on let's party on let's let's do something good so <laughs> yeah um, I am all about one thing that you said is you were talking about like the earth being healed, like everything being healed, like everything being made new. Right. And like, that's, yes, that's echoed in revelation 21, but I love Romans eight when it says that all creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the children of God. And I wonder what it would look like if we woke up to our God potential. And I'm not, I'm not blaspheming here. I'm talking about Jesus's, you know, John 10, no, you not, you are gods. Like we possess infinite creative ability. And what would it look like if we were able to harness um, our brain, if we were able to set down our ego, if we were able to work through our trauma and we were able to just be led by spirit or intuition or source or whatever you call it, you know? Um, and I'm here for it, man. I'm like fucking apocalypse built. And I feel like this is a revealing. I feel like this is a time of massive change of massive creation and i know that uh, there's a lot of evil and there's a lot of oppression and there's a lot of systems but you know also things are crumbling and you know things are dying and there's a rebirth that'll happen and you know i'm here for all of it whatever part i get to take part in i'm like hell yeah like bring it on like, mm. like, let's work for let's work for healing let's work for yeah. all things being made new yeah I love that. I love that. It's so funny because I just had two thoughts about what you said. And now like, I kind of forgot about it. Well, okay. One thing was the whole thing about having a protective, some sort of protective ritual or whatever. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, sure. There are always like, whether you think of it as ancestors is like there are unwell ancestors or something, or there's, there's always things that are, um, are not good for us or not healthy for us. Can I share a little bit of my own sort of psychic journeys around this? So God, please do. Yeah. So I, um, I saw a lot of like just crazy superstition and Pentecostalism around demons where it's like, Oh, you know, my refrigerator broke and it's an attack of Satan. And I'm like, like, you know, it's, I, like you sure it's not just the law of entropy (laughs) um and just this like always wanting to blame all your problems on this external source of evil number one and just the crazy superstition around it so I went through a phase where I was for a while just really anti anything mystical and even as I kind of recovered my mysticism I was still like I don't know about this demons thing like I, I see more of it as just a psychological construct you know about like our own unintegrated stuff. Right. Which I still kind of agree with to some extent, but, um, I won't go through the whole story, but basically, um, after doing meditation and and starting to have weird psychic experiences, I went through a year long psychic development program with a teacher that I, I really, you know, love and respect. And, um, during that, that year, you know, we had a whole module where we talked about sort of like, you know, helping to remove, um, dysfunctional and she called it foreign energy, you know, and entities, foreign entities, things that just didn't need to be in somebody's energy field. Right. And she told a story. She said, she's like, 
yeah, demons are real. And she said, I didn't used to believe in it, but I was doing uh, a psychic kind of aura reading, like what I do um, one time for a client. And this woman was sitting, was sitting in my office and all of a sudden she just started like, like literally was on all fours, like flipped out, was like on all fours on the ground, snarling, like a beast, like contorting into weird shapes, you know, barking like a dog, like all this stuff. And I was just like, what the hell what's going on? Well, she said, um, I I didn't know what to do. And so I decided I was going to go call 911. I didn't have a phone in the room. So I was going to step out in the hallway to do it. And I was like kind of tiptoeing around her. This woman was totally not present, not sentient to what was going on. So she stepped, my teacher steps out of the door. And as she starts to go out the door, she said, I saw Jesus come to me. And he said, what do you think you're doing? And she said, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go call 911. And he's like, no, you're not. You're going to, you're going to help this woman because they can't help her. And she said, Oh, fuck. No. And he's like, he, she said, Jesus said to me, do you trust me? And she said, well, yeah. And he said, I'm going to walk you through it. And so she went back, she sat down kind of doing just, he walked her through it using the techniques, the energy healing techniques that she had been taught. And she said, when it was finished, she saw Jesus. It was like this, she saw this, this thing that had been removed from this woman as this, um, just like a kind of just like pathetic, like, I don't remember what she said. It looked like it was like kind of ugly and sort of pathetic looking. And she said, Jesus just scooped it up into his arms so lovingly and carried it out of the room. (laughs) And Um, she said the woman came back to herself. She had no memory of what she'd been doing, but she did say that she basically had like made a deal with the devil for like money or something like that. (laughs) She had done some kind of ritual or something where she, I guess felt like she had sold her soul to the devil. And she's like, I was just like, you know, totally flabbergasted by this because she, she didn't believe in, you know, the, the demon stuff at that point either. Um, so whatever it is, you know, my own sense is that, um, you know, when, when I, when I do healings for people and stuff, my understanding is like, whatever is here right now just doesn't need to be there. It doesn't belong. And it just, if we can return it back to the source, it, it can just kind of be composted and, and recycled, you know, whatever this thing is that we're calling demonic is it's maybe just something that has gone off course. It is not in the right, um, right ecosystem, like, you know, just needs to be kind of healed or reconfigured. Um, and part of, for me, what spiritual practice is about is sort of strengthening our nervous systems so that we can help to hold and process some of these energies. Uh, and the, oh, I know what the other thing you said was about Jesus, about, about, well, about, don't you know that you are gods, right? And I really believe that what Jesus came here to do was to show that like what it is to be a human and a human body and to be so, such an open vessel for God that you really are waking up to your oneness with God. And you can, it's not about becoming any human. It's about 
allowing your humanity to be fully inhabited by God, not so that you're totally beyond reproach all the time, but because like, so you can fully live into your purpose and, and what you were created for. And um, I think about this a lot when people talk about like the imitation of Christ and, and they think that like following Jesus is just like doing some kind of Jesus LARPing where it's like, well, you know, Jesus, and I'm not saying like, don't serve the poor or don't, you know, like whatever, if that's what God is calling to you, great. But like, I don't think it's about doing exactly what Jesus did. Like, what would Jesus do? It's about how can I also become fully allow God to fully inhabit me in the way that Jesus did. And I don't want a world full of people who are exactly like Jesus, because that would be boring. Like I want an ecosystem of people who are fully alive to their divinity and to their, um, their empowerment by the Holy spirit and by God so that we can create this world together, you know, and, and we can recreate it and renew it. And, um, you know, I think it can be a little dangerous to get too utopian about it and think that like, we've got some vision of the perfect world that we're going to create, you know, but it's about just taking it one step at a time and, and listening to spirit, you know, listening to God, whatever you want to call it <laughs> and, and taking the next step and the next step and the next step and, and letting the things that like, aren't really, aren't really serving you to die and fall away, you know? And, and anyway, I love everything you just said and a couple of things I really thought about. I walked around with PTSD forever and didn't know about it because yeah. I was, you know, blue haired and woke as fuck and, you know, pissed off about injustice. So <laughs> there was no self-care. It was the cause, right? Like we were going to end homelessness and yeah. Um, and that was like, I was passionate about it, but I didn't, I didn't really do the self work and I didn't crack wide open and realize like, oh my God, I have PTSD. I never wanted to, I always wanted to feel like I was a warrior and I didn't yeah. want to, and I am a warrior, but at the same time, like it was, you know, the fires of hell that formed me. So, like, I don't know. I um, started doing a lot of that work, started doing a lot of central nervous system work. You were talking about that. And uh, I was been into polyvagal theory for a long time and like just resetting that. And uh, it has worked wonders in being able to calm me down so that, you know, I can, I can be a calm presence around others. Yes, absolutely. Um, the energy work that you talked about I am such a firm believer in energy work and body work and somatic work. And I think Jesus was like, I mean, yeah, fully God, fully human, but like this magic man who was so very aware and in tune with others mm -hmm. that he could just pick up things. And I think he was able to shift things and um, really just help them to align. Um, yeah. I I never thought that I needed to get into my body. Like I, you know, I, it was head first and um, sickness and death and all of that caused me to kind of look at myself and start getting into my body. But, you know, all the junk that we don't address trauma. I mean, it just stays in there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I went and had Reiki healing probably about three months ago for like the first time. And in my Pentecostal like words, all I could feel was the fire of the Holy Spirit, like move from my pelvis area all the way up and through my head and out the top of my head. And it was an amazing experience. And my arthritic uh, inflammation pain that I always suffer with, I chronically suffer from this, um, left. And I was like, what the hell? Like, maybe I should have did this a long time ago. (laughs) Um, But I'm a firm believer in energy work. Yeah. One thing that I also want to talk about, if you're cool with it, is time that I asked Satan to help me. So, um, so I was super horny, like all the time as a child. And of course, you know, women bodied people cannot be horny. Like they have to be like the Virgin Mary or the harlot. Um, they can't be Mm -hmm. hot blooded women. Right. Um, but I was, um, even though I was always very, I had a lot of masculine energy but it's always like always horny, like always looking for like the next man to devour. Right. And I found this one that I wanted and I had this dream about him and uh, the dream is, you know, full of all kind of fun Jungian archetypes, but I tied him to a chair in my dream. And then after that, I just wanted him, and I would pray. I'd be like, God, please let him look my way. Nothing was happening. So one night I'm in the bathtub and I'm just like, Hey, uh, Satan, if you're real, I would really like to, you know, date so-and-so. And I just threw it out there. And then I was like, oh man, I feel guilty. I probably shouldn't have talked to Satan. And then I was like, God, please forgive me, blah, blah, blah. Well, then like the next day, so-and-so is like, hey, you want to go get something to drink? And I was like, hell yeah. Um, and so me and so-and-so had like this illicit very lusty, sexually fulfilling relationship off and on for like two years. Um, And then I found out I was like his side chick. And I was like, (laughs) oh, how did I get to be the side chick? Um, And it was painful. But uh, in that course of time, I had moved to Southeastern University, which is like this Pentecostal school where I went to study the Bible. And my roommate, one day I walked in and, you know, I confessed to her that I was having perverted dreams and I was really into this guy named so-and-so and I, you know, drive to see him. And I just, I don't know, I felt so guilty about it, but yet it felt good. And he made me feel pretty and all those things. Um, and I walk in and she's got anointing oil and she's casting demons of perversion out of my bed. And I'm just like, it's not the bed, man. It's in me. Like it, it's my stuff. It's my sexual stuff. Um, I tried to get therapy for that. And I went to this like Christian therapist and he was like, well, you need to stop masturbating. So your husband can please you one day. And I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> like what? Um, but it took me a long time to like work through my own sense of like sexuality and who I am. And um, yeah, but yeah, so I, I did pray to Satan one time and <laughs> a lot more than I bargained for. So yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that there's, I think that there is some wisdom to be had in, uh, the left-handed path, which, you know, is about really going into your lust and your desires and letting them teach you. 
And, you know, we can kind of set ourselves on fire sometimes, and we can also learn some really valuable lessons that way. So um, I, you know, it's funny because I didn't pray to Satan, but uh, when I was young, I was always like, I don't understand if God loves everybody and wants everybody to be reconciled to him, what's he got against Satan? Like, why can't we pray for Satan? And like, you know, shouldn't we love him too? <laughs> that was my, my thing when I was a kid that I could never quite square. And um, I, I do think, yeah, I, I, I think that there is something there where um, we have to integrate that sort of archetype ultimately. We have to integrate our lusts and our desires. And um, so, yeah, anyway, I think that's that's a super fun story. <laughs> the rando, I'm going to talk about mushrooms. Um, but one time I took mushrooms when I was in Texas. And uh, this was in my time when I was like purely anti-evangelical. But I took a bunch of mushrooms one night and I went and stared in the mirror. And I know you're never supposed to do that. But I saw myself as like half masculine werewolf mm-hmm. and half like feminine Valkyrie. And those two like kind of archetypes of like this, this thing that was like blood hungry and controlled yes. by the moon. And like, it just kind of awoke. And it was like my sexual masculine energy and like also my feminine warrior energy. But, you know, at the time I was 21 and abusing uh, sacred medicine. So, <laughs> so I just thought it was cool. I was like, oh, I'm part werewolf and part Valkyrie. All right. But, um, you know, later as I began to think about those archetypes and integrating them, I was like, you know, it is okay for me to say that, um, I am powerful in feminine energy and also powerful in my masculine energy. And I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I had, I've had similar visions um, not of the, the masculine feminine, although I do, I, we all have masculine and feminine energy and have to integrate it, you know, but, um, for me, it was the, the pure radiant Virgin Mary and Kali, like the blood dripping, bloodthirsty Kali, because I wanted to be so good. And I also so wanted to fuck some shit up for people and really just like potentially murder them at that time in my life. And, and there, yeah, there was some real integration work that needed to be done with like really owning my anger and not being ashamed of it, but letting it, letting it do its work without letting it pull me under and control me, you know? Um, but appreciating what my anger had to teach me. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about was, I don't know, have you ever explored any, because we both grew up kind of in this, this Pentecostal world. Um, so basically I'll just tell my story. So I, a few years ago, I was at an event with Maladoma Somme, who is, um, he's from, uh, he, what he, he recently died. Um, but he was, uh, from Burkina Faso, from uh, the Dagara tribe, and he's a, a, essentially a shaman, and he teaches a lot. He used to teach a lot in in the West, and so um, I was at this event with him, and he had us all get up, and he was drumming, 
and he said, okay, like he taught us like just a chant in his, in his language. And so we were saying it, I don't remember what it was. He's drumming, we're saying it. And then he's like, now I want you to get up and dance. And he's like, come on, you got to dance. And so we're dancing around the room and we're chanting this chant that he's given us. Right. And then he said, okay, do you know what this means? And we're like, no. And he said, it means spirit come into this place. And I had this moment of feeling like, wait, that's spirit come into this place. Like that's, I mean, if you've grown up in a Pentecostal church, that's a phrase you say over and spirit come into this place, like over and over all the time, right? When you're dancing and swaying and the music is going or the drums are going or whatever, this is like people, people do this in a trance state all the time. Okay. And I just thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something connected there. And I started researching into like, really, what are the roots of Pentecostalism? And I knew the basic history, which for people who don't know that the, the Pentecostal movement is started in Los Angeles at the turn of the last century. Um, it was it was primarily a group of African-Americans, although there were also white people coming, but it was just kind of this explosion of what we now see as Pentecostalism, where all of a sudden people were prophesying and preaching and like dancing and speaking in tongues and having this um, outpouring of this spiritual sort of energy coming through them, right? And I mean, long story short is that basically Pentecostalism is West African shamanism transplanted into Southern uh, Protestant evangelical Christianity. <laughs> And, uh, and I just thought that was so wild. I was like, there's, there's some spirit that is present in Africa that is literally manifesting itself in this Christian context. And the fact that we have this connection is kind of amazing to me. And I'm yeah. sure a lot of Pentecostals would be like, no, that is absolutely false. That is not true. But there's so, so, so many similarities. Like, I forgot who said it, but they said the heart of mysticism um, in every religion touches each other. And mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. so true, right? Like, so I have so much in common with my friends that practice Kabbalah or um, my friends that are, uh, you know, witches who are very mystical in their practices. Um, I have more in common with them sometimes than I do with, uh, you know, my Orthodox Protestant minister friends. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. Um, although I totally respect the, you know, though all the different religions um, and respect Christianity in all its forms. I was thinking what you just said to about kind of um, shamanism and you know as we're watching the fall of different institutions one of the institutions that i hope uh really unravels is that of western psychology and the way that it has dehumanized people i think there's many good practices from western psychology specifically like young's work and behavioral cognitive therapy but there's some also some practices, of course, like lobotomies that are horrible um, in asylums and and just so much classism and yeah. 
just dis- ableism and just a lot of racism and things of that nature that's deeply embedded in Western psychology. And I think it's funny because in two thirds world cultures, they venerate those who have um, mental health differences and they call them healers, priests, and shamans. Mm. But here in America, we isolate, um, devalue, dehumanize, label, and medicate some of our most gifted. Mm. Um, don't, don't mishear me. I do believe mm. in medicine. I think therapy is, is a godsend. So I recommend therapy for everybody. And if medicine helps, then I think people should take it. But I've met so many beautiful people in America, um, specifically in the city of Atlanta, that are experiencing homelessness that would be classified as someone who has a mental health diagnosis and basically thrown away or locked away or threatened um, with a 1013. And these are people who hear from the spirit realm and are very uh, in touch with God. And um, so, yeah, so I think we do have many shamans and priests and healers in America, but uh, I think sometimes they're forced to the margins. Yeah. Uh, So this is interesting. This is something that I've thought about a lot being both like this practice practitioner of mystical arts and a healthcare professional as a nurse. And I have worked in a little bit in some, in, in mental health settings and even in, in the, the regular hospital settings, you encounter mental health diagnoses all the time. Um, in addition, my psychic teacher is a nurse and her uh, her stepfather is an MD and her mother is a psychologist. So she really impressed on us the, the, the importance of recognizing when someone is mentally unstable, like really would benefit from uh, some mental health care, you know, and, and also protecting ourselves as far as, you know, practicing, um, you know, not like ex- exposing ourselves to people who are really unstable that would be um, difficult for us to help. And she said, I will help people and I will even take people in my programs that are bipolar and schizophrenic. But she said, you know, I have to, I have to know that they're getting mental health care usually, or, or like, and she said, there's clients that have come to me wanting readings or work done. And I won't see them unless I know that they're seeing a therapist they're getting some mental health care and that they will let me communicate with a therapist and, and share with what I'm seeing, you know? Um, and so I have actually tried to cultivate, and it's hard because our, our, our whole healthcare system is so fragmented. Um, I've tried to cultivate relationships with like, um, not just therapists, but even like psychiatrists that are open to the spiritual stuff. Um, and that can do medication, but that can also work with someone who, um, who sees a different side of it. And I will say from my perspective, what I see is that, um, I think you're absolutely right that when people are experiencing these kind of psychotic break episodes and stuff like that, they are hearing from the spirit realm. And there's even research that says like, if you look at like schizophrenia in a lot of other countries, the voices people hear are just helpful. So they're not really that disruptive. Like, like we would say that they're schizophrenic, but they're just hearing these helpful voices, but it's like, there's something about Western culture where they experience the voices as really destabilizing and often like um, cruel or violent or, or disruptive. And 
I do think we have to be careful because sometimes there is like people want to, you see this happen all the time. They're like, Oh, see, I'm just like, I'm just a shaman. I'm here. I don't need any mental health care. I'm going to go off on my own. And that can be really dangerous. Um, and at the same time, and even in, I would say in traditional cultures, when someone has like a shamanic awakening, like you need somebody else who has been through it to guide you and, and to like really teach you in some ways to sort of purify those energies and like, and have some controls around what's coming in, what's coming out. Like we had to learn the same thing in the psychic program. Like, like you said, like protecting yourself from, from energies or spirits that are malign or that just aren't, you know, are, are going to be disruptive for you. And it can be a dangerous thing. You know, there are people, it can be a life and death thing where as people uh, try to integrate it or, or try to open up to it, that it is very dangerous for them. So I don't think we should take it lightly by any means, but I think we need, uh, yeah, you're right. Like there's something we, we so need integration between the shamanic way of seeing the world and the Western sort of medicine way of seeing the world. Um, I think if you take somebody, uh, unfortunately, we don't have the support really for people right now. I mean, we, we don't have those kinds of healers, not very many in the U S and we don't have a culture that can support people as they go through that kind of process of awakening to their spiritual gifts and learning to discern spirits and protect themselves and, and to channel this very, very powerful energy in an appropriate manner. Um, and so I think for a lot of times the best option for people is sometimes institutionalization and med medication. Cause like, that's the only way they're going to stay safe. But, um, but I, I agree. I, I think that that's not enough. And it's, it's actually a really poor alternative because that in and of itself is so damaging for people. Um, and we need to find ways to appreciate their gifts, give them the, the support they need and integrate them in, into our communities ultimately. This is such a fascinating conversation, Rebecca, and your insights are, um, are so good. And they just, they send me down a thousand different rabbit trails. Um, I, yes, I fully agree. And I even think about like to my friends who are still in evangelical worlds or charismatic worlds, like we often propel someone who's charismatically gifted to the forefront without allowing them to develop character and ethics mm -hmm. to go through therapy. And there's such a disdain for therapy in, in some of those worlds. And, um, and then we see people that have moral failures because they were, you know, thrown to this position of glory and they hadn't been able to do the soul work, the, you know, the care yeah. that they needed um, for their soul. And, and to be honest, I think some of the most brilliant gifted healers are people that have walked through horrible trauma and horrible yeah. fires. And oh, there's something about it that really breaks you open. To, yes. Yeah. We, we have to do the self-work. And if, if that's anything I could leave somebody with is like, do the self-work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was what I was going to ask you as we kind of get towards the end here is, is what would you say to people just closing out this conversation? Um, what would you, you can call it a piece of advice or something to give people hope or um, just moving forward? Yeah. So um, 
I would say for me, there's some things that have really worked. Um, that is therapy mm-hmm. and spiritual direction has been really great and a lot of body work. And I used to, um, I've always worked close to the poverty line in the work that I've done. And I thought that body work was a luxury. So I thought like massages, mm-hmm. um, reflexology, things like that. It's like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's a luxury. Can't afford it. Um, but yes, you can, I think you can afford it. And I think we all of, I think a lot of us have kind of a mindset of lack instead of a mindset of like abundance. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think you are worth the money being spent on yourself and your care. Um, and that includes non-traditional care as well as, you know, mental health and medical health and dental health. So you should come first always. And another piece of advice is this whole like self flagellation that comes with Christianity, like the message of picking up your cross and carrying it or dying to self um, or living for the church, um, being a martyr. These messages, I think, get internalized in a way that people think that they are not good or they have to work 24 hours a day or they have to do everything that they can. And, um, and I, th- I think those are shitty messages and I think they're not good messages. I don't think they have anything to do with Jesus's desire for people to live an abundant life. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, some maybe some of you are called to, you know, die, but but wouldn't it be better if we lived authentic yeah. and open lives? Yeah. Yeah. I think that message of dying to self gets really misunderstood because I think it is about shedding these layers that like uh, of the things that, that we don't need so that we can become fully inhabited by God. But we, we mistake it as like, I just have to punish myself or I'm not allowed to have anything I want. I'm not allowed to have nice things. I'm not allowed to have anything that's good for me, but my suffering is what's going to save the world. (laughs) And I I will, I will tell you one thing. I recently had a a, a sacred plant medicine experience where um, I started as I was kind of coming, going into it and really getting towards the intense part of it, feeling like, oh, I'm feeling all the pain and suffering of the world. And I am feeling all of it. And I just have to hold it and be present to it and be open to it. And actually Jesus came to me and he said, "Uh, no, you don't. Why do you think I, I, that was my job. That's not your job. I did it so that you don't have to. Why do you think you have to do this? And I was like, oh, oh, like, so whatever my cross is to carry, it's not the one that he carried. (laughs) Right on. Um, I just, I just freaking love you, Rebecca Burnt. You are amazing. I love you too. And I'm so like, I just love this conversation we had. I think this has been, um, yeah, just so much fun. And I adore you too. And I just think you're the best back. And I want to thank you for being my first guest on this podcast. I'm excited. And um, I look forward to hearing more of your podcast. And also, I just want to shout out to everyone that you are an amazing writer and they need to follow you. Just wow. What a gifted um, archivist you are and historian and just 
and you're gifted. So yeah, uh, thanks for thank you. thanks for you. Well, and before we go real quick, just tell people where they can find you. Oh yeah, so um, I'm on all the socials. Uh, I have a website. It's beckcranford.com, and uh, hopefully, should the um, planets align and the time is right, as the old Pentecostals say. Um, hopefully I'll have a little book coming out that'll be yeah. about my life. Um, and I hope uh, me being vulnerable will help others get vulnerable in their stories. Thank you so much, Beck. Um, great to talk to you. And I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks. Bye.